Okay, hello and welcome back, everyone. We are super excited to have you for our second episode. I am Mackenzie Welch, your main host. And my name is Michelle Zeman. And today I have Tatiana Garcia, a BCABA, who um, is knowledgeable about cultural competency and the importance of using this within ABA therapy. We're going to be diving into this, um, tying in our ethics code along with this, and also to just diving into some resources on how we can be more culturally competent behavior analysts. Um, so Tatiana, tell us how you even got into the field of applied behavior analysis. All right. Uh, thanks for having me. First of all, um, a little bit about how I got started in ABA. Um, a few years ago, my oldest uh, child was receiving ABA services and her technician at the time actually encouraged me to take a look into the field. I was just starting my bachelor's degree and I still didn't know what I wanted to do. So she said, just give it a try. You might like it. Um, and I did try it and I did like it. So um, I got started in the field back in 2018. Um, three months into working into the field of ABA, I got my RBT certification and then um, I continued working, um, started the fourth edition uh, course sequence at Florida Institute of Technology. Um, to get my BCABA accrued all my hours. Um, and I became a BCABA in 2021. So I've been in the field now for a total of five years, and I'm currently in school to um, hopefully achieve that BCBA credential. <laughs> nice. Very nice. Um, when do you officially graduate with your master's degree? Um, next summer. So it'll be August 2024. That's exciting. Where are you going to school? Arizona State University online. Very nice. Very nice. I like that. Awesome. And, and have you uh, just been primarily in the home setting, um, across settings? What What's your experience like in setting-wise? In home. Cool. Awesome. Yes. Great. And then you worked your way up and now you're a BCABA. Great. Awesome. Um, okay. So we're just going to kind of dive into different uh, topics just related to cultural competence and um, how we kind of tie this in as clinicians. So our first question for you is how do we incorporate cultural or uh, just cultural competence within programming um, and how do you how do you relate that within um, making programs for your kiddos? So I think it's always important to keep in mind the cultural background of the clients that we're serving. Um, so, for example, um, in my husband's culture, there's a lot of finger foods that we eat. Um, and a lot of common goals that we teach younger kids is like how to eat with a spoon. Well, yeah. For my son, when he was receiving ADA, it was a big thing for us. Like, he doesn't need his spoon. He eats pupusas all day long. <laughs> so we, we just need him to be able to hold the pupusa in his hand and take right. bites. Right. Um, so it, they had to take our culture into consideration. Um, 
when I'm working with clients, I've worked with um, a family before where they had prayer time at specific times. Yep. So I had to make it very clear to the technician, like, this is the schedule during this time. Every single day they pray. So just back off, go take some notes, um, let them have their prayer time, and then resume sessions when yeah. it's over. Yeah. So, um, and that's very important to let the family have that time because Absolutely. if you fight against it, you're not going to have buy-in and they're really going to appreciate it. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. I love that that you brought that that up. And just um, in Michelle and I kind of talking prior to this episode, um, when you are maybe like first starting a program, like do, would you think it might be beneficial to like go in with like an environmental checklist or something like that to just while you're, when you're first starting in home to just make sure that you're, asking parents and asking the families about like what their culture is and that kind of stuff to make sure that you're incorporating that into programs. I think checklists could be very helpful. Um, So far in my experience, I tend to get the information during the intake process. I'll ask like specific questions like um, what are, what are your goals for your child when it comes to eating and social interactions, especially um, like, is it your goal for your child to be able to sit in a religious service for a certain amount of time? Yep. Um, that's come up a few times when I'm providing services. So I, I tend to ask those questions during Heart. intakes. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really, I really like that. And, you know, I know that, Um, Sometimes we run into some biases and a little bit of difficulty when, you know, um, dealing with families that may have different cultures and beliefs from us. So um, to tie into our next question, um, what has been the most difficult experience you have had when working with a family who has different beliefs and different cultures? And how did you go about solving those? So I think it's all about education. Honestly, for most people, they're afraid of things that they just don't understand. So um, I've come across a situation before where I was working with a family and um, I didn't understand like the religious practices that they were doing. Like at first, um, to be very honest, I was very taken aback um, because to me, it looked almost aggressive. Some of the things that they were doing during their praying. Um, but I just asked them, you know, what is this? What are you doing? So I could research it on my own later. And then I just asked questions like, so I I could get more knowledge of what was going on. Um, so I think when you have those biases, you just have to ask questions and educate yourself. So you have a better understanding. Yeah, I can definitely, I can definitely see that, you know, Um, Because sometimes we go in with a certain like one-sided perspective, but we're not seeing it from all different angles. So it's really like interesting to me to even like, you know, kind of see it from other angles, but also to asking those questions. And Mm -hmm. so kind of to kind of like go into um, one of my next questions, um, how can we ensure that we have the best BCBA and therapist match to a family who has um, specific cultural beliefs. 
how do we know that we're providing the most quality services given um, given that as well? I think that's where it's really up to clinical directors to gather that information that we receive during intakes and make sure that they're mindful of that pairing process and then listen to families and technicians during pairing. Like if a parent um, expresses that maybe that they're not clicking um, forever, whatever reason, um, it's just, it's important for everyone to just listen to each other. Um, especially when it comes to matching, because I think we all know sometimes you may match a case, a person to a case, and then it's not necessarily the best match. And it happens. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And just being able to be flexible within, I think that that's a huge part and you can totally weigh in on this as well and just being able to like flexibly shift our mindset like midway through just kind of with everything we do yeah mm -hmm. yeah um go and then michelle i know this might be a good just time to tie in 1.10 of just now that we are talking about personal biases um so i know that you you have some experience with this and then um obviously tatiana can can talk on this more too yeah, so, you know, looking at 1.10, we have the awareness of personal biases and um, challenges. And it's so interesting because one of my um, supervisees actually ran into a situation where she um, had a client who had the Confederate flag up. And she is against the Confederate flag, like what it stands yeah. for. And so um, it's one of those situations where, you know, I spoke with my supervisee and said, you know, it may not affect you right now because she was telling me it's not affecting my quality of work. But the fact of the matter is, you know, if you feel that this is not, um, if you feel that this is not like morally correct, then it is going to affect your work. Mm -hmm. um, so that being said, have you ever personally ran into a situation where your views or opinions ultimately ended up negatively affecting your work as a BCABA? So I had a similar experience um, about a year and a half ago. Um, I was working on a case with a family. Um, well, I was assigned to a case with a family that didn't necessarily agree with my skin color. Um, so it was definitely a shock for them when I came walking up, um, and I saw Confederate flags and stuff, and I've seen it all the time. I've grown up in the South. Um, so I was like, okay, you know, let's go in, but it was definitely made clear. Um, once I entered the home, they, they let me know straight up, like, we prefer to not have you in our house. I'll say that in a nice way. Um, so at first, unfortunately, during the time when I was on this case, I was working um, with a company that was still trying to force me to go. But I told them after that situation, I said, look, you have to understand the parents somewhat in a nice way told me that this isn't going to work. Yeah. I agree. Um, it's 
just plain awkward now if I try to go back and I'm not going to act like myself if I go back. I'm going to be um, like tiptoeing around the situation. So I was like, it makes no sense for me to go back. And I had to kind of fight tooth and nail to not wow. return to that case. Um, but eventually I was able to convince them that it was not going to work. It wasn't going to be a good fit. There were some personal biases on both sides. Cause once I was told like I, they weren't comfortable because of my skin color, then I immediately had that bias of like, Oh, yep. you know? Um, so it's, that's been one situation. Um, oh man. I, when I first, um, I grew up in the South primarily. So when I moved to Northern Virginia, it was a whole different experience to me, very diverse area um that i was not used to um so i even had to get used to when i was first working in the field like learning more about muslim cultures and at first i was really nervous because growing up i was always told like you go to church you go to church and there's nothing else um but then i was exposed to something totally different um and I had to ask questions. I had to learn. I asked, you know, um, why do you pray during these certain times of day? What is um, what is Ramadan and what's the whole thing with Eid? Because I had no idea. I love that you, you just, you asked, because I think that that's one of the yeah. big things that we just need to, we just need to humble ourselves and be like, I don't know. And uh-huh. I'm gonna ask. So yeah. yeah, I had to ask many questions to become comfortable and kind of, lessen that bias that I was raised to have because you know we we developed them based on like our learning history so I I definitely had to ask questions and just educate myself yeah and I'd imagine that families appreciate you know you wanting to gain further education um, in their culture and beliefs as opposed to sort of like sticking to yourself and sticking to your own perspective you know so I can imagine that that was probably very much appreciated by the families that you know you've asked those questions to um just out of curiosity too have any of your families ever been like offended by you asking or has everyone pretty much been very receptive to those questions I think um, every once in a while when I'll ask, I'll get a um, client that's kind of taken back. Like, do you, you actually care? But once they get over that, they're very happy to tell me most of the time. Um, I would say for the most part, when people are asked about their background, they're willing to share. People usually love to share their backgrounds. Mm -hmm. So um, I haven't had any situation yet where someone kind of closes down on me and they're like, I don't want to tell you anything. Yeah. Okay. Uh, You just kind of hit on a point that I want to go back to on, on learning history. Um, so can you just talk a little bit more about how, how learning history affects culture and how we really, how we can consider that? Yeah. So with, I I was thinking about in terms of like communication routines, values, beliefs, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so definitely our learning history has a big part um, of our background. So 
even um, with communication, um, my husband and I are different backgrounds. I'm African-American, he's Latino. Yep. Um, yep. I grew up in a house where we scream at each other from across the house, <laughs> and that's completely yeah. normal. Yep. Um, but when I married him, he would get upset with me, like, why are you screaming at me? Like, why can't you walk up to me and come talk to me? And I'm like, what do you mean? That's, yeah. what do you mean? I'm talking to you. What do you mean? So I realized after time, I was like, maybe that's just something that's different by the way we were raised um it's not okay in your family's household to be yelling across the house but it was completely normal in mine um even like daily activities um we where i grew up it was completely normal to be with grandma all the time and extended family. Um, and I come across um, situations uh, since I moved to Northern Virginia, for example, um, mm -hmm. where that's almost kind of not a thing. And it surprised me when I moved here. Um, it's just very different. This yeah. culture in the area of the country around here compared to the South, like it's normal to be with grandma and have second and third cousins. But in Northern Virginia, it's almost like you're on your own. Yeah. <laughs> um, Are yeah. you in the DC area, Tatiana? So I lived in Northern Virginia, right outside DC okay. um, for years. We recently moved to a mountainous town close to West Virginia. Um, it's slowly coming, becoming an extension of Northern Virginia, where you're seeing a lot of Northern Virginia type of things going on. Yeah, yeah. 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 But, um, even here, it's, uh, kind of like something I noticed even with culture from Northern Virginia, once we moved out here, um, People are big about Sundays out here. Things mm -hmm. close early. It's not like the city area where everything's open. Open. Interesting. Yeah. Like kids here, they're used to going to sleep at 8 o'clock. Oh, so wow. Cool. Northern Virginia, kids go to sleep random times, depending <laughs> on their parents' like work schedule. Yeah. It, it's, yeah, it, it's different. And even that you have to take into consideration. Absolutely. Providing services to clients because um, it's, yeah, it, it affects, like, how affects, you can provide yep. services that's effective for them. Yep. And, like, yeah. when, what time of day you're delivering services, all that. Mm -hmm. If you're going to, like, work in certain programs at this time of day or, um, yeah. And so, sometimes I just, I love that you said that because, like, I don't, I wouldn't even think about that kind of stuff, you know? So you, you just have to be really, I think, cognizant just that you, there's a lot that we don't know going into mm -hmm. situation. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And you know, um, one of your thoughts um, about learning history, Mackenzie, actually led me to sort of thinking about um, cultural competence in a parent training. Mm, so yeah. there yeah. are certain things in, you know, the in their culture that we may see as, oh, well, we shouldn't be doing that because we're reinforcing the behavior yeah. or we're not implementing this the correct way. So yeah. that being said, how do you approach, um, how do you approach parent training? 
So that one has definitely been like a learn as you go experience for me over the years. Um, I've definitely had a few parents where they come from a culture where it's completely normal to baby the child until they're 13, which yeah. I kind of understand because um, where my family's from, you're a baby until you're 13 and then all of a sudden you're an adult. Yep. <laughs> so I, I get it. Small window. <laughs> yeah, I, I get it. Yeah. I, I get that type of thinking. But um, it spills into sometimes what we're trying to teach parents, like independence. Yeah. It's totally okay for your kid to go make themselves a sandwich. Yep. They're yeah. They're 12 years old. It's fine. Um, But the parent is adamant that they are still needed in that capacity. Um, so you do have to take into consideration culture and that comes into one of those situations where I think to myself, okay, I created this goal thinking this may be beneficial to this kiddo, mm -hmm. but now that I know more about the parent's background and what they're expecting um, what the culture is, maybe this isn't appropriate. Maybe they yeah. don't expect their child to be making their own sandwich until they're 15, 16. And that's completely yeah. normal for them. Yep. So yeah, I, I, I've run into a couple of those situations in the past. Um, even, um, the, the taboo question of like, is my child really on the spectrum? I've gotten that a lot. Mm -hmm. um, the diagnosis can go away. I've gotten that a lot. Um, I've seen that with some cultures. And just speaking from my background, um, being African-American in my community, sometimes that diagnosis can be taboo. Really, any yeah. mental diagnosis is taboo. Yeah. So I've even experienced it with my own children. Some family members saying like, oh, they'll grow out of this. And I'm like, no, they're not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my this goodness. Just, um, how they are, accept them. Yep. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And I've come across it with some cultures that are stuck on that. And that's where I have to first say, you need to talk to your doctor. This is a medical conversation you're talking about. Um but I, I encourage, like, don't just look at this diagnosis. Let's look and see if you're concerned life. about the deficits. How can we work on increasing skills? Absolutely. And let's just focus on that. Let's not focus on the diagnosis. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, how do you deal with technicians that will, like, say, oh, well, I think they need to be like this. I think that they need to um, be more independent. I think the parent needs to... Um, to stop reinforcing the behavior because I have approached many technicians in my day who have told me yes. that. But again, we have to look at it from a cultural um, point of view. And so how, how have you dealt with that with your technicians and how have you best educated them? So in that aspect, um, I think it's been a little bit easier for me since um, I have three kids myself um, that have an autism diagnosis. So 
I kind of use that to my benefit sometimes to explain to technicians, like, look, parents are struggling <laughs> sometimes. Um, cut them a break. Uh, we know that they're not supposed to be giving the kiddo a cookie when they're crying, but maybe they happen. just had to give in at that time to have two minutes of quiet. Yep. Yeah. It, it, it realistically happens with parents. Yeah. Um, when it comes to the cultural side, um, I, I just try to talk with technicians and try and get them to a place of understanding sure. and to be em empathetic of others. Like you, you just have to have that consideration and just understanding. Um, so that's usually how I try to approach those situations. Yeah, that's great. I like that. Um, and then as far as um, I wanted to bring up, this is kind of switching gears a little bit, um, but a big thing with cultural competence that comes up is um, the giving and the receiving gifts. Um, so our 1.12 code is about giving and receiving gifts, as many of us know. Um, mm -hmm. So can you tell me about, have you ever, I know I've had a lot of situations come up um, where it just declining a gift might be considered really, really rude. And it just gets really, it gets really tricky to, to navigate those waters. Um, how do you address this with a family who is like used to providing gifts or providing things like food? Sometimes like providing just like going into the house, they want to provide like tea or food and stuff like that. How do you, how do you approach that? So definitely when I started in the uh, field a few years ago, before the code changed and it was at the point where you couldn't accept anything. Yep. It was very, very hard. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was very difficult. I I'm with you on that. <laughs> yeah. I had a family in particular um, from Iraq. And the mom told me all the time, like, this is my culture. When you have guests, you have tea ready. You have to drink the tea. And I would tell her over and over again, like, <laughs> I can't drink the tea. My supervisor says I can't have it. Um, they said no. But she was very persistent, and she would always have the tea ready yep. <laughs> every single day. And I'm like, I can't have it. Yep. Um, and then at one point, she did get very upset. It was like I was spitting on her, to be honest. Yeah. She didn't feel like um, I was accepting the fact that she was trying to be very welcoming to yep. me. Wow. So it got to a point where um, she actually contacted my clinical supervisor and was like, why are you telling her she can't have my tea? That is not nice. And it got to a point one day where my clinical supervisor said, have one tea cup with her. Just have one cup of tea mm. um, so she feels fine. Um, so we kind of had to break the rules. <laughs> um, but it was very difficult because in her culture, that's what they do. They do. They are very welcoming to their guests. It's not normal for a guest to come in their house and you're, yeah. they're not given anything. Um, yeah. I had another case when I was a technician. Um, the mother of the client would always have food. 
She'd be like, I know you're hungry. Yep. You work so hard. You Very, always come yep. here at lunchtime. Yep. And I'm like, I promise you I ate before I came in. Um, <laughs> but that was not an excuse. Um, you have to eat. Um, this was before I gained some more weight, but <laughs> in my skinny days, she was like, but you're so small. You have to eat. Um, and I'm like, I'm not hungry. Um, so it was definitely really hard because I do feel like with those clients, I messed up my rapport. Totally. To be and I, um, I felt very, very, I've had like, it's sometimes when I think about it, it's like, okay, like to them, it's almost just like, if somebody says hi to you, you're not saying hi back. Like it, it's just, yeah. It, and I feel like we, that's like just how we kind of, we, and I know we've adjusted things as, as time's moved on, but yes. it does really affect rapport, you know? Mm-hmm. It does. It does. I ran into a situation very similar to that. I had a family who um, was trying to give me a gift card and the cookies um, that they made. And I'm like, I can't accept these. And, and she's like, oh, but everyone else has. It's like, I know, but it's in my code. And so I ended up compromising and you know, um, ended up taking the cookies, but I didn't take the gift card. Um, you know, I just said like, listen, I really can't accept this, but let's come to a compromise. Cause again, it, you know, like what you were saying, Tatiana, you know, it does ultimately damage rapport. And, you know, that's one thing that I, I, you know, wonder with our code, you know, could we modify that? Um, and how could we, provide that feedback to the BACB and tell them, hey, you know, we have a lot of different types of families. Is the $10 yeah. rule enough, you know? Yeah. yeah, even nowadays with the economy, right? Like $10 isn't even enough. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I feel yeah. like at this point, I'm glad that they changed that, but now it's like they're still a little bit behind on the times. Um, and I'll say this even from the parent side, when – my oldest was receiving ABA. Um, I remember one Christmas in particular, I was trying to give her technician um, a $10 gift card to Chick-fil-A. I was like, please take it. It's Christmas. Yeah. You help us so much. Yep. You've taught my daughter how to talk. I just appreciate you. Just take the gift yep. card. And she told me no. And honestly, okay. at first I was upset because I was like, but you've done so much for us. Yeah. And this is the only time... I'm thanking you. Just take yeah. the gift card. Yeah. And um, she said no, like she was supposed to. Um, but eventually I, I was persistent and I, I kind of made her take that gift card. Um, so I, I am glad that the board has changed that a little bit. Because um, we've definitely all have been in situations where For sure. we kind of had to break that at some point. <laughs> Hundred percent, and that's where it gets into this ethics is gray area of like, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you really yeah. have, you gotta be like, what is the least harmful effect? You know, you and right. sometimes honestly, the sure. saying and the not accepting is more harmful than you know actually like you know breaking or breaking the rules a little bit. You know, so yeah, like that you brought that up for sure. Yeah. Um, so we are going to take a quick little break here and I'm going to give the first code word. Um, so our first code word for the CEU is planet. That's P-L-A-N-E-T. Again, that's P-L-A-N-E-T. And we will be back in just a moment with Tatiana to talk more on cultural competence. (laughs) 
Okay, and we are back um, on our cultural competence conversation with Tatiana Garcia. Um, so we wanted to dive a little bit more. I know we left off talking about um, the ethics code. So uh, Michelle's going to talk a little bit more and kind of dive in a little bit more on the ethics code um, and just kind of hear your thoughts on that, Tatiana. Yeah. So, um, so you know, I'm looking at the RBT code of ethics and, you know, I'm looking at um, – 1.07 in particular, which states RBTs work directly with their supervisor to ensure that they are culturally responsive in their work. Um, that being said, um, how do you go about being able to check in and see if your RBTs are culturally responsive in their line of work and what they're doing with their clients? Um, I think that's where supervision really comes into play. Um, modeling how to interact with the family, um, things like that to ensure that they are being culturally competent. Um, and then, then if they're not, um, just taking that time to, um, educate the technician one-on-one, um, on that specific culture. Um, and I've, I've had to do that before. Um, I had a situation um, when I was still accruing my hours for my BCABA. Um, I was a parent trainer on a case where the parent tried to put the child in the car for a community outing, getting ready to go. There was no car seat. Mind you, the the child, I think at the time was two. Um, so the technician freaked out and she actually started yelling at the parent and uh, it was kind of mean, the yeah, things she was saying. So um, I got involved because uh, the parent called me upset. What's going on? They told me the situation. So I had to actually have a meeting with the technician on the side and say, look, um, definitely when situations come up like that, uh, call the supervisor immediately for, sure. <laughs> for help. Yeah. yeah. Number, number two Keep in mind that this family has recently immigrated here. Yeah. In their country, I don't think that they use car seats. Yeah. So oh, wow. this family just needed to be educated yeah. on what's the law here, pretty much. So I was like, it, there's a certain way if you have a disagreement of something you're seeing. Um you still need to be kind. And if you don't know what's going on, you really need to reach out to your clinical supervisor yeah. immediately. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and you mentioned, you know, supervision being a really big thing when it comes to cultural competency, which I mean, even reading 4.07, incorporating and addressing diversity, you know, I feel like that's the perfect time to educate um, our RBTs and our technicians on what that might look like, um, you know, which kind of leads into my next question about, you know, um, self-reflection and um, soft skills. So that being said, um, what are some um, ways that we can engage in self-reflection with relation to cultural competence and how often do you think we should be working on that? Oh, I think that reflection is never ending. Yep. 
we we have these biases that we grow up with we learn over time um you should never stop self-reflecting on those biases i ask myself all the time like um we all have situations where we're working on programming and we get frustrated (laughs) with whatever comes up um and sometimes i have to step back and say why am i frustrated yeah is it because this program's not working out the way that I'm wanting it to? Am I frustrated with the culture that I'm dealing with because I don't understand it? And that's where I have to really take a step back and say, okay. That's such an important question. Yeah. If I'm frustrated, maybe I need to ask questions. I need to ask the parents more questions of like, why are you doing this? I'm just trying to understand from your point of view, why? Um, do more research on um what's happening so i I think that that self-reflection is never ending the the moment that you stop reflecting you're probably going to lose that cultural competence and honestly offend somebody yep i think that's absolutely stop kind of like that's where the client stops growing. That's where you stop growing as a clinician. Like when you stop that self-reflection. I, I, I mm-hmm. the... Yeah. And the buy-in just disappears as a result, you know? Yeah. Um, so, you know, and it's, it's so interesting to like the way that I've gone about parent training, um, you know, with relation to my clients is asking, you know, like, what is, what are your top three goals, mm-hmm. you know, for your child? And you know, there may be some times where they're saying like, hey, I want to reduce these behaviors, but then I also have to take into account some of the cultural aspects of what they knew, what they grew up with. And so, you know, it seems like the advice here is to sort of like, you know, take a step back and also just ask questions, um, mm-hmm. you know. Yep. Make sure you're educating yourself. I mean, um, does that sound about right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Asking questions is a huge, I mean, we should always be asking questions like across, you know, everything. Because like, it just goes back to that whole, you know, once I stop, it, it's it's that if once you think you've evolved, you have like 20 more million years of evolution to do so and I, I think that that's just a big theme in cultural competence of it's always and it's always going to be evolving right it's going to always be as time goes on it's always going to be evolving so yes absolutely absolutely and you know I'm looking at um a soft skills resource um that I looked at called um compassionate checklist and you know some of the questions that are in here um, is one from a collaborative approach. So the first um, being, you know, like, did the clinician incorporate family slash individual client input when identifying objectives slash instructional targets or procedures? And, you know, it's very interesting because, you know, we're so used to typing up certain goals, you know, certain functional communication goals or certain, um, I don't know, certain listener responding goals, but then, You know, I'll hear something from a caregiver and they'll say, hey, like, you know, my child needs to be able to um, to tolerate getting his hair buzzed, not haircut, hair buzzed. And it's a part of their culture. Um, And also looking at it from a behavior analytic point of view, along with self stimulatory behaviors, you know, we 
Um, we tend to, um, when it comes to self-stimmed, you know, I try to leave it as like open as possible for my client to be able to engage in self-stim. But then I've also come across families who have said self-stimulatory behaviors um, for them, like the hand clapping and whatnot, um, is considered a big stigma in their culture. And so, you know, I look at things like that and I wonder, you know, and as an autistic person, you know, I especially wonder, I'm like, you know, what can I do to make sure that I'm listening? And what can I do to, um, what can I do to make sure that my family still have my buy-in, even though I may have this opinion about self-stimulatory behaviors, you know? Yeah, I've come across something similar like that before. I think it was, um, the left hand was frowned upon, like the Mm. usage of the left hand. Um, I had a kiddo, um, that used to hand flap with that hand in particular and try and eat with that hand. But the parent explained to me that in their culture, um, it was kind of taboo and almost like a bad luck type of thing. Um, from the outside looking in at first, I was like, why, why, why are you getting so nervous about him and that hand? Like, what's going on? Like, I had no idea it was a thing, but she had to explain that to me. And then once she explained it to me, I said, okay, I can definitely see why we need to decrease this because um, we don't want your kid at the family meeting just scaring everybody. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. That's such a deeply layered um Cause it's like, it's such a, it's a balance. Like you have to be balanced in, you know, respecting the client as being autistic and that just part of their disability as well as the culture and the stigma as well. So yeah. something very similar that, um, actually a BCBA of, um, of one of my previous jobs, um, she had a family who wanted their child to decrease toe walking behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was very interesting to kind of hear the perspective of why. And again, it just goes back to, you know, this is considered a stigma in my culture. And so, you know, it's almost like we're wanting to still make sure we're respecting the client. Cause again, like I look at it, I may look at it and say, oh, well, why does it matter? but it does to them because of their culture. They may feel threatened by that. And so I think that's just something that it almost seems like we have to check in on ourselves, you know, not just at the beginning of the ABA process, but throughout our, um, throughout our time as their clinician, you know? Right. Well, Tatiana, it has been such a pleasure to have you on and have your insights and perspectives. We really, really appreciate it. Um, Are there any particular resources that you have in mind? Um, I know we're going to mention a few articles here in in a second, but are there any just off the top of your head that you kind of want to leave listeners with? For cultural competence, um, off the top of my head, I can't think of any, but I will say, Facebook groups Great. are yeah. a good option. That's good, good way um, to get all perspectives and stuff. Wow. I, I follow a few um, myself um, just to learn more of the language um, for people in the autism community and what they prefer. Absolutely. Um, yep. That's great. So I ensure I'm using the right language. Yeah. Uh, 
So I, I think those groups are helpful because you can ask questions and people are glad to answer them all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And there's an influx of people like there's always going to be someone who's going to answer. So yes, Mm -hmm. that's a great great resource. Absolutely. Um, You know, earlier I talked a little bit about the compassionate checklist for soft skills. Um, One article that I would highly recommend is called soft skills, the case for compassionate approaches or how behavior analysis keeps finding its heart. Um, It is in behavior analysis and practice. Um, it's from a 2021 edition, volume 14, number four. Very, very good article. If um, if you ever run into needing sort of that like self-reflection checklist, um, definitely a good place to look at. Um, and then another one that I was looking up was behavioral artistry, examining the relationship between the interpersonal skills and effective practice repertoires of applied behavior analysis practitioners. This one's in the Journal of Autism and Developmental Disorders from 2019. Definitely a very good article to read as well. Um, definitely, you know, when you get a chance or, you know, whatever, you know, definitely feel free to look through that and kind of see like what you can learn as a result of um of what they're saying and how you can be a more culturally competent practitioner yeah Um, yeah, definitely have to check those out yes (laughs) the last one you mentioned michelle i just i mean so michelle mentioned it to me a couple weeks ago and it's a really that it's a really nice way of just breaking down um interpersonal skills and um it's it's really interesting so highly highly recommended on that as well yes and we are going to leave you with the last code word, which is spaceship. That's S-P-A-C-E-S-H-I-P, if I can remember how to spell these days. <laughs> um, but we just want to thank you so much for tuning in um, on this um, really, really interesting and ever-evolving topic. And thank you so much, Tatiana, for being our um, guest expert. You're, you were very, very um, eloquent with everything you were saying and you had very, very valuable perspectives. So thank you so much. Thank you guys. All right. And bye.